Join the Hamden County Sheriff's Office medical team. We offer professional medical and mental health care during and after incarceration, following a revered public health model. We're hiring for nursing and supervisory roles, offering a less hectic case than hospitals, a state pension, benefits, and potential retirement after 20 years. Our firm but fair approach to corrections has been emulated nationwide. We're not your average law enforcement agency. Visit our website to learn more. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Living authentically and leading with our truth makes us catalysts of change, healing, and growth. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and each week we're here to share the narratives of people and programs both inside and outside the criminal justice system, the reality of life behind the wall, the stigmas that surround those who have been impacted by the justice system, and the inspiring stories of those who are hustling to prove that failure isn't final. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. I am super excited to introduce our guest. He hails from San Diego, California, where he's calling in from. And I met him some years back when I was living in California. And I'm so excited to welcome to the show this week, Justin Brooks. Justin, thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here. So Justin is a pretty famous attorney. His claim to fame is that he founded the California Innocence Project in 1999. Is that correct? Yes. And what precipitated you founding the Innocence Project organization? Sure. So back in the early 1990s, I was a law professor in Michigan. I had started my career as a criminal defense attorney in Washington, D.C., and then I got seduced by academia and uh, moved to Michigan. But I was only lasted about six months before I read about a woman on death row in Illinois. And this article said that she was sentenced to death on a plea bargain. So I was a little shocked by that, thinking, how could anyone get a death sentence on a plea bargain? It's not really a bargain in any sense. So I uh, set up a meeting with her on death row and uh, went out and met with her, and she told me she was innocent. So I was kind of shocked by the whole thing. It's a 23-year-old kid scheduled to be executed, telling me she's innocent, not understanding how she even ended up on death row. So I went back to the law school where I was teaching, and I told my students exactly that. And I said, who wants to help me out on this case? And four kids raised their hands. And that night, they came over to my house, and we started digging through the case. And very quickly, we discovered that she was factually innocent, that the evidence against her was completely fabricated, that the only eyewitness was lying because she couldn't even see the crime scene from where she said she saw it occur. And I just you know, started digging through the case. Fortunately, her death sentence got reversed by the Illinois Supreme Court, and I was able to take her case back in front of a new jury. But unfortunately, I was limited to arguing for her life or for the death penalty. The court wouldn't let her withdraw her guilty plea. They just granted her a new sentencing. But working on that case inspired me that, you know, that's what I wanted to do with my life. And California didn't have an innocence organization. You know, California is the biggest prison system in the United States and the biggest death row in the U.S. 
So I moved out uh, to California and I started the project, quit my faculty position, and I started it 24 years ago. And that's what I've been doing for the past 24 years. It is so commendable to read about you. And even on Wikipedia, they list your notable exonerations. And as you know, we had Brian Banks on the show over the last couple of weeks. And that was your first exoneration case where someone was post-release, correct? Yeah. Yeah, Brian's case, I just, it was so hard to take on any cases where people had been released, even when they'd been wrongfully convicted, or even when they only had a couple of years left on their sentences, because we just had so many death penalty and lifer cases and limited resources. But Brian convinced me that his case was just so tragic. And, you know, with so many of the people who've written to me over the years, they didn't have great opportunities before they got caught up in the system. And Brian was this kid who had absolutely everything. I mean, everybody's saying he was going to the NFL, you know, one of the best football players in the country. And it was all just taken away by a 15-year-old kid who just says something stupid one day and all the adults go along with it and he ends up in prison. So, you know, I, I was compelled to take on Brian's case. Uh, I'm glad I did because now, you know, Brian's living a good life. You know, he said to me that when I said we only take cases of people who are in prison, he said, as a convicted sex offender, I will always be in prison because this is going to hang over my head the rest of my life. He had to wear an ankle monitor that he had to charge twice a day. He couldn't get a job. He couldn't live, you know, almost anywhere in Los Angeles was either near a park or near the beach. So that compelled me to take that case on. So you start this Innocence Project and you've got your students helping you. How did you start to support the organization? And were you able to give law school credits to your students or the students that worked with you to take on these cases? Because I know a lot of these students did this for free, right? Oh, yeah. What I realized working on Marilyn Malero's case in Chicago, and by the way, uh, I continued to work on her case for the next 27 years. And I started that case when I was 29 years old. I got her death sentence reversed and her sentence to a new life sentence by a jury. I finally finished that case last year and got her fully exonerated. So I worked on that case 30 years. I, I started it when I was 29 years old and I finished it at 58 just to give you a sense of this work. And during that time, was able to you know, free 40 innocent people. But the, without the students, the students are key because you know, thousands of hours of reading transcripts and going to crime scenes and visiting clients in prison. And the way it works is the students would get law school credit for doing the work. And I realized on that first case with Marilyn that the best way to teach someone to be a lawyer is to have them go out and do field work. In the same way, you can't, you, you can't become a doctor without working on real patients. You can't learn things out of a book that require skills. And so it's it's a win-win in that the students will learn these skills they'll need to be a lawyer. At the same time, we're using them as a resource to free innocent people from prison. So I set up the project as a law school clinic where the students were working under supervision on the cases. And every student has a stack of cases that they investigate and then work with the lawyers to litigate the cases and ultimately free the clients. So Brian made mention that the Innocence Project just 
the California one that you founded, was just inundated with requests. So how did word get out that you were taking on these cases? And then how did you vet through and make decisions on who you represented? Yeah, so when I started the project, it was just me and a half-time assistant. And I had the same question that you just (laughs) gave me, which was, how am I going to get clients? And then the L.A. Times wrote an editorial welcoming me to California, and the mail hasn't stopped since then. So just thousands of letters pour in every year from people from prison, from their family members, and they all say basically the same thing. I'm, I'm innocent. And so I set up a process for screening the cases where the first thing is they fill out a lengthy questionnaire with all the information needed to assess the case. We then get copies of their appellate briefs. And then the law students go out and talk to the lawyers who worked on the case before. They go out to the crime scenes. They meet with the clients. They look to see if there's still physical evidence in custody. They work the case up and they do a memo on it. We then have presentations twice a week where I have this awful Caesar-like power of thumbs up or thumbs down. And uh, that's a great visual. I just I I saw you sitting in this chair with the wreath on your head. (laughs) That's how it felt some days. And the crown is heavy on the head because it's an awful power because I know that when I say no, these people are most likely going to die in prison. And that's just the reality is that we're kind of the last stop. Most times lawyers have someone behind them. The the trial lawyers will have an appellate lawyer behind them. The appellate lawyers, maybe somebody files a habeas petition. But by the time I get these cases, they're out of options. But I I just know the reality that for us to reverse the conviction, we have to develop compelling evidence of innocence. And based on my experience, and of course, sometimes I'm going to be wrong, which is what's horrible about it, is I know certain types of cases, certain types of evidence makes cases impossible to win. So for example, never won a drug possession case, even though I know that there's kids just hanging out on the streets in LA and in San Diego and throughout the state that might just live on that street where other kids are selling drugs. And the police can come and arrest everybody who's in the area because under California law, you don't have to have the drugs on your person to be charged with possession. But those cases are impossible to win. If the jury didn't believe that they weren't out there engaged in drug dealing, how do you prove that negative? So cases like that just would get closed, and there's just nothing we could do about them. And then there were other types of cases, like an old rape case, for example, where the evidence has been thrown out and there's no way to do a DNA test. So you learn as you go along, you know, what are winnable cases? And if I think it's potentially winnable case, it continues in the process and then gets into more serious investigation and ultimately litigation. But I think one of the reasons we've been so successful is that judges started to realize that we were doing this very tough screening process and we were only filing cases where we had compelling evidence. And so when I started the project, we judges just would summarily deny petitions. And over the years, it got to the point where we got hearings on almost every case we filed because they were, you know, well put together and well researched and and we had the goods. And like anything else in life, if you have a track record of winning or of being a compelling attorney and presenting evidence-based information that makes sense, right? Then it just, every time you win a case, it, you know, like the notch in the lipstick case, right? You get one more, someone else goes, oh, well, they've already won three cases. So, you know, we'll, we'll take a look at this. And, and that sort of perpetuates itself. 
along the way. But you brought up an interesting point. How did you get taken seriously when you first started all this at the age of 23? <laughs> yeah, how did, how did I get taken seriously? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I look back at it now and I think, oh my God, in my 20s, I'm there taking on death penalty cases. You know, of course, at the time, even a teenager, you think yourself as an adult and should be taken seriously. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't really have an answer for that. I'm glad that I was. You know, in the fundraising arena, it was even more challenging to get people to fund our work. And, you know, I had basic expenses like gas money for students to drive around the state and transcripts that cost a dollar a page and crime scene photos that cost $5 a page. And we had, um, you know, collect phone calls coming from the prison or had thousands of dollars in collect phone call bills. And the way we actually got started was I was at a party and I meet this woman and she says she wants to help out with our project. And she said, oh, yeah, my husband likes to help out, too. And I said, what does he do? And she said, oh, he's a musician. I said, you know, what kind of musician? Oh, he plays guitar. Oh, is he in a band? Yeah, he's in a band. He also does his own thing. I have to ask you about 10 questions. Say, what's the name of the band? And I'm, by the way, along the way bragging about that I play guitar and I play little coffee houses. And she says, oh, he's in a band called the Eagles. And so I said, please, oh, please don't tell me your husband, <laughs> Joe Walsh, like my favorite guitarist of all time. Of course it is. And I end up meeting him. And I just, you know, I get the Eagles to support us and they did a tour and we raised a large amount of money right when I first started the project that was able to really be able to hire staff attorneys and pay for the expenses and I thought oh this is easy and you know I've never had that kind of hookup again there was a drought a two-decade <laughs> drought of being able to get that kind of level of donation and that kind of access but yeah without Joe Walsh and the Eagles I don't even know if we would have gotten off the ground so I guess it's good I was a kid when I was starting doing all this because I didn't know enough to know how hard it was going to be. <laughs> no, and sometimes that that's a gift, right? So we have to take a quick break. Justin, don't go anywhere. There's so much more I want to chat about, including your new book that is out. Listeners, grab another cup of coffee. We'll be right back with this week's The Hustler Files. Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, Sheriff of Hampshire County. This year, my office received the prestigious Fatherhood Award from the Children's Trust, a state child abuse prevention agency, for our work with the Nurturing Fathers Program. We are proud of our partnership with the Children's Trust and firmly believe that strong, safe families help build strong, safe communities. If you're interested in joining our award-winning team, visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com, submit an application online, or call and ask for our HR department. Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I am so excited this week to have as a guest Justin Brooks. He is a criminal defense lawyer, law professor, and the founding director of the California Innocence Project, where he has spent decades freeing innocent people from prison. So once again, Justin, thank you for joining us on The Hustler Files. My pleasure. So we've been talking about the Innocence Project, and I had read somewhere that you've been instrumental in actually helping Innocence Projects worldwide get launched. Yeah, I've been doing that for, well, really most of the last 24 years. When, when I started the California Innocence Project, there were only six or seven of us doing this work in the world. There were just a handful of projects. Our first meeting of Innocence Projects were 
seven of us sharing a pizza in Chicago. And our last meeting of people working in Innocence Projects was over a thousand people in Phoenix last year. And since I started the project, you know, you constantly get people calling you to say, hey, we're, I'm interested in doing this kind of work. How do I get started? And so I helped a bunch of projects get started uh, around Europe. But mostly what I've been doing is focusing on Latin America because, first of all, I live in San Diego. I'm right on the border. So I cross over to Mexico a lot. And I went to high school in Puerto Rico, so I speak Spanish. And so I started doing trainings and traveling around Latin America. And I trained the first 12 public defenders in Chile after the fall of Pinochet. So I did a lot of stuff in South America. Now I'm at the point that I've helped 35 innocence organizations start just in Latin America. And I meet with the lawyers once a month on Zoom. And I've set up an organization called Innocente that is this network of innocence organizations in Latin America. That is unbelievable. I have to imagine that takes up a lot of your time. A lot of my time, exactly. I find myself speaking more in Spanish during the day lately than in English because of all the emails I'm doing and Zooms and calls. I mean, there's 30 years behind us in Latin America, and that's why I really want to focus the rest of my life on that work because I realize that, you know, I don't know how much time I have or none of us do, but that I can take what I've learned the last 30 years and apply it in Latin America. For example, they still don't have access to DNA evidence. They don't have preservation laws of evidence after trial. They don't have a lot of basic legislation that we've passed in the U.S. to make this work possible. And so me being a pipeline for that information is is a more valuable use of my time than even working on individual cases where maybe I can get, you know, one or two people out a year. Did you literally write a manual that is translatable to all these different countries? Yeah. So I've done a number of different things in that arena. One is I spend a huge amount of my time um, training lawyers. For example, in, in Mexico, after 400 years of no trials, Mexico started having trials about 10 years ago. They had a constitutional amendment that created the right to trial. Uh, but the problem is lawyers don't know how to do them. So imagine that in Mexico for 400 years, a police officer's report is just deemed valid. And you never had an opportunity to cross-examine that police officer or their report. And Mexico has the second most corrupt police force in the world, second only to Egypt. So now, Wow, I didn't know that statistic. Sorry, I just had to say wow because I didn't know that. Yeah, it's incredibly corrupt, you know, for so many reasons, starting with the fact that the pay scale is about the same as a 16-year-old could make at McDonald's. So, you know, they're very corruptible and very corrupted. And so now I spend a ton of my time um, training lawyers and creating manuals in Spanish on trial skills. And then I spend a lot of time translating legislation. And right now I'm actually spending a lot of time translating my new book into Spanish. And that book is called You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. And the book documents all the top reasons for wrongful convictions based on my experience with my cases and cases from around the world. And think it would be very valuable in Latin America because a lot of these reasons people go to prison are universal. For example, one chapter in my book is called You Look Like Other People in the World. because one of the leading causes of wrongful conviction is misidentification. And that has to do with problems with memory and problems with police procedures. 
And there's simple reforms that can be done to improve identifications. And I spend a lot of time lecturing about them around the world because they're just basic police procedures, like not allowing a police officer who knows who the suspect is to participate in a lineup. Because even if they're in the room, they always do stupid things that give tells of who the suspect is. And even when they don't, the witness will say something like, well, it kind of look he kind of looks like number three. And then the officer will say, oh, good job. And now by the time they go to court, they're saying, I'm 100 percent sure it's that dude. And they were never 100 percent sure. They just got confirmation from the police. And so there's all these things that I've learned over the past decades that are just simple reforms that would decrease the number of wrongful convictions. And, you know, I want to spend as much time as I can spreading that information to have those reforms become more global. And, you know, we still haven't accomplished it completely in the United States, but we've made a lot of improvements. So much information to unpack. I love listening to you talk. I was going to jump in on the, the new book. I read a quote from a former special agent for U.S. Department of Homeland Security that said that your book should be required reading for every law enforcement officer and every prosecutor in the United States and around the world. And it sounds like you're making inroads that way. How do you get a book like that into the hands of different organizations, you know, from from jails to state prisons to the federal prisons to the, you know, forget the private industry prisons, those probably aren't even interested in looking at a book like yours. But how do you get that distribution? Well, you know, it's also the beginning of your question of of how do you get those kinds of people to care about what I'm talking about, something I've just learned to do so much better as I get older. You know, I, I, I wish somebody could have whispered in the ear of 20-year-old Justin <laughs> to not be so angry, <laughs> not treat everything like a war, and try to get cooperation. Because as a young lawyer, I was very angry about these cases. I was a super aggressive trial lawyer. And I've learned over the years that that's not the best path. You know, you've got to get people to care about the issue. And you can't just give up hope and say, oh, all prosecutors are corrupt. All prosecutors are against you know, my clients, all police are like that. Because what, what I found in the last 10 years, for example, is I've walked more people out of prison um, via cooperative agreements with prosecutors than I have through litigation. And it's convincing them that my client's innocent and this is the right thing to do. And that's what we have to do in this country and around the world is we have to get prosecutors and defense attorneys and all the stakeholders in the criminal legal system to work together to make improvements because it's just not working doing it through the adversarial process. And, you know, we've had some progressive prosecutors elected like George Gascon in Los Angeles and Krasner in Philadelphia. And we're seeing some movement there. But it's interesting to see it's kind of like as Led Zeppelin taught us in the 1970s, there's there's two paths you can go on. And, and the two paths have been some prosecutors' offices have just, you know, they'll fight to the bitter end on these cases because they don't want to be proven wrong. But if you approach them the right way, you can often get them to be partners in these exonerations. And that's what happened in the Brian Banks case. When I walked into court that morning with Brian for his habeas hearing, you know, I had been working for months with the district attorney to get him to understand that Brian was innocent and get him to understand that this testimony by this 15-year-old kid was fabricated. And that's why the district attorney got up and said the magic words, which is we concede and just conceded the case. 
And that's what I'd like to see more of in this country. And believe it or not, I find that easier to accomplish in Latin America because maybe one good thing that comes out of the class system in Latin America is lawyers see each other as sort of compatriots, not as enemies, because they go to the same clubs and went to the same schools and all that. And there's more conversation with them and more cooperation. So much that you put your passion and have put your life into. And I applaud you. I really do. I'm sure you have changed so many hundreds of lives, even in the tentacles that you've developed in other countries. And it may not be your touch point, but your touch point touched someone else who then touched someone else who touched 10 other people. And I, I think it's wonderful that you're still, I, I can hear it in your voice, that you're still so passionate about this subject and pursuing this. So that's going to lead me into my final question, because we're going to run out of time, sadly. And Justin, hopefully I can get you back on again, and we can talk some more. And we're always happy to have you come on with one of your students, or maybe even someone else like Brian, whose life you changed. But I ask every one of my guests the same question, and you've probably already answered it to a certain extent. I believe we all have life assignments. And I'm just wondering, what do you think now, 24 years later from starting the Innocence Project in California, what do you think your life assignment may still be? Yeah, I mean, there's the saying of with great power comes great responsibility. And and I don't believe that I have any great power. But what I do have is a very specialized skill set. That's a very niche thing. I mean, 99% of lawyers don't really understand habeas litigation and post-conviction and how to deal with these kinds of cases. And so after spending decades in that work, I really have a lot of niche knowledge. And then that combined with the fact that had my parents not moved to Puerto Rico in 1979 and thrown me in a Puerto Rican high school, I never would have been exposed to Latin America, learned to speak Spanish. So I think I do have these specialized knowledge and relationships that make it important that I focus the rest of my life on trying to bring what I've learned here in the United States to Latin America and try to assist down there as much as I can to improve people's lives. So yeah, that's what I I think my focus is and my purpose is, and that's what I plan on doing. It's a wonderful purpose, and I'm always excited to chat with you. And there were so many more things I wanted to talk to you about today, and we didn't get to it. So we will definitely have to regroup and get back together in 2024. So Justin, thank you again for all your hard work, your passion, your energy for changing people's lives. And listeners, we'll be right back to wrap up this week. So don't touch that dial. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work in active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. We are back, and this week's thoughts come from Lisa Buscombe, Everyday Moments. Find the magic in the everyday moments, the small things, the things that at times you brush off or move through quickly because they seem boring or mundane. They seem so small that they're not worth thinking about nor remembering. But as time passes and you look back at life, those will be the things that hold the most magic. 
Those little things will be what you crave more of. Those everyday things will be what warms your heart. This is your reminder to enjoy them today, to look for them, love them, and treasure them. The small things really do become the big things. And that's a wrap on another Hustler Files. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to thank all of our guests and advertisers for their continuing support. You can find all of our shows on the whmp.com podcast page or on any of your favorite podcast sites. Have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It will inspire others. See you next week right here on the Hustler Files. (laughs) 